Democrats. Right now, though, we are talking about the restart plan in BC and what exactly that's going to look like. It's likely we will see an increase in numbers of people infected with the virus as we start to come together more. And so that's where we have to find that balance about the things we need to do to be together and our own personal risk and our own personal comfort levels. And some people won't be ready to do that for a while because there is still a risk in our communities right now, but we can manage that risk. We can live with this virus and still get back to those things that are so important in our lives. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking just a few moments ago. Let's bring in Richard Zussman, Global News Journalist based in Victoria. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, Jill, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, no huge surprises. We knew what was laid out in step two. Confirmation today, it is going ahead. Did anything strike out for you or stand out for you as far as the announcement that was made earlier today? No, it's also this idea that, you know, we are starting to get to a point where we are going to live with COVID-19 and treat it no differently than we do other communicable Oh, Richard, can you hear me? All right, we're going to try and reconnect with Richard. Something about the technology and Richard. We'll get Richard back on the line. What he was saying there, uh, I think I can pick that up, was this is not, it has never been COVID zero in BC. It's always been how do we live with this virus? And that's why I chose that one statement from Dr. Bonnie Henry as well. As she said, there will be people who won't be comfortable and might take them a bit longer. Let's see uh, if we've reconnected. I think we've reconnected with Richard. Richard, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry about that, Jill. So, yeah, I sure can. Can you hear me okay? Yep, sounds good. Jill? Okay, you know what? We're going to get a different line to connect with Richard because I do want to hear what Richard has to say. While we do that, let me just go through what it actually means in case you didn't hear the entire news conference. Moving from step one to step two includes recreational travel. You need not worry anymore about driving to a cottage, driving to a different health zone and uh, driving there and then uh, being stuck at a roadblock, being stuck and being told you have to prove why you're going. It has to be essential travel. And if you don't, you'll be paying a fine. So that is done. We can now travel recreationally throughout the province. When we're talking about outdoor personal gatherings, things like weddings, perhaps birthday parties, other types of outdoor personal gatherings, maximum of 50 people. Maximum of 50 people for indoor seated organized gatherings. And that's uh, things like movies movie theaters, live theater, banquet halls. They do have to have safety plans. All right, let's check in. I think we've got Richard on a different line now. Richard, are you all good to go? I am. There we go. (laughs) No worries. That's technology. It's not always our best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You were saying, though, but for people that might still be thinking COVID zero, it's not. It's how do we live with this virus going forward? Yeah, Dr. Henry uh, announced today, in essence, a change to the way that the WorkSafe plans are going to work. That really stood out to me uh, in the announcement today, that moving forward, the province is going to transition away from these COVID-19 safety plans and towards communicable disease safety plans. So, you know, before the pandemic, uh, you know, businesses often didn't think about what the impacts would be of a pandemic on their day-to-day operations. We didn't think about that in terms of schools. I know there were some thoughts about what it would mean for hospitals, but now we're going to start thinking more about how do we do things to help prevent the spread 
of viruses and diseases. And, you know, we're going to move away from calling them COVID-19 safety plans and just calling them health safety plans. And that is going to be ready to go by the time we get to step three, which at the earliest will be July 1st. So that really stood out to me. You summed it up very well. There weren't a lot of surprises here for what we can expect. You know, we knew we'd be able to go to movies starting tomorrow, travel across B.C., you know, have those play dates for kids, uh, play sports indoors, you know, all of those things. We hit our targets. We knew we were there. And now it's about thinking about how do we manage things going forward? Uh, You ran the clip that we're going to continue to have COVID in our communities. And then the real question is, how do we manage that? Because the province does not feel it's going to need to move back. There's a lot of confidence in this plan that we're going to continue to move forward. And yes, there could be bumps in terms of cases, but vaccine helps us through that. We know that cases of the virus are less severe when people are vaccinated. All of those are important, especially as we start getting more vaccine and we're going to start boosting that rate of, of second immunizations for British Columbians. What do you think it will look like then? Uh, I, was, I went on to, or I tried to go onto the BC Ferries website right after the <laughs> announcement and the site wasn't working. I don't know if that was because so many people were going on. BC Ferries uh, put out <laughs> some information saying they were working on it. They were trying to fix it. Clearly people are excited to get back to traveling within the province, uh, still being asked not to travel outside the province if it's not essential. What do you think this means, though, as far as will we see that kind of a smooth transition? Yeah, so it's going to be back to where we remember it last summer. So the encouragement is travel in B.C., but only go to communities that want people there. We're no doubt going to hear some from some more remote communities today saying we're not ready yet. We already heard from Haida Gwaii saying they don't want visitors to come until at least step three, if that's July 1st or later. We're going to likely hear from some other communities something similar. You know, their system is just not ready yet to start welcoming guests uh, with the potential risk of COVID. Uh, And again, there's this reminder, like you mentioned, don't travel outside BC, but also if you're Do not come to BC from outside of province for non-essential reasons. That includes Albertans. Uh, That has been challenging at times for many of those communities along the border as, you know, people go back and forth for family and shopping. The encouragement still is stay in your home province. Uh, And all of this is about, as you mentioned, a gradual return to some sort of semblance of seeing our friends, seeing our family seeing the province, and then all of that will help the tourism sector and the restaurant sector and help these sectors bounce back that have been the entertainment sector, arts and culture, music. All of this will start bouncing back from what's been an incredibly uh, difficult year and a half. Talking about parking now, and the City of Vancouver launching the last phase of public engagement when it comes to a residential citywide permit parking initiative. It is called the Climate Emergency Parking Program. The point or the idea is to encourage people to purchase cleaner vehicles and to reduce pollution in the City of Vancouver. It comes at a cost, though, one of those costs being the price to park overnight. Yeah, so uh, we're proposing a $3 uh, per night uh, fee for the, the, um, for the citywide uh, permit zone. And that's really based on, you know, trying to be sure we're not creating a loophole for people to uh, just pay every night instead of uh, paying the uh, pollution fee. So that was just part of the presentation earlier today. Let's bring on Sarah Kirby-Young, a Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you so much for being with us.
Good morning, or good afternoon, Jill. How are you? <laughs> good afternoon. Good, good. It's been a busy day. Um, it has, it what, has. what are your thoughts on this, uh, the, the residential parking permit program that would be citywide and how things were kind of explained earlier today? So I, I want to be really clear about this. It's, it's really important that we address the climate emergency and work to reduce our carbon emissions in the city. Uh, my challenge with this program um, is the way it's constructed is it has significant equity issues, um, also impacts affordability. But we've heard from staff saying themselves, for example, that they do not think that the parking street fee will actually shift behavior. So my point is, why would we be putting something in place? Think about it. If you have about 300,000 street parking spots in the city, um, we think it's about 150,000 people that would be affected by this program currently. Um, and who parks on the street? Likely, it's people that don't have access to off-street parking. They don't have underground. They don't have a private driveway in a single-family home. So they may be um, renters in secondary suites. They may be in um, walk-ups or older rental buildings that don't have an option. And so you are going to potentially charge the people that could least afford it. You're also going to charge a $45 annual fee um, for that right to park on the street. Um, but you're not going to differentiate between electric vehicles or other vehicles. So if the stated goal is to get people into more sustainable options like an electric car, why is the charge not different? Either why it's not half off or why is it not even free for an electric car? That was kind of what struck me as well in that this, like you said, targets street parking. It's only for street parking. So, And they were clarifying, too, that so this is for vehicles, 2023 models and newer. So if you buy a gas vehicle in 2023 and this is approved, you're going to be charged an extra $1,000 a year if you park that vehicle on the streets and on top of the $45 parking fee. It does nothing, though, to somebody who might have a three or four car garage uh, for parking three or four gas powered vehicles in those in that garage for no extra fee. And isn't that the kind of thing that the city says through this that they would like to stop? It, it does nothing for those people. And it's inherently inequitable. And I, I do want to because you identify two different things. there, and I want to break that down a little bit. There's two components to this as the city staff have proposed it. One is like you say, the residential parking permit. So moving to um, required permit on all residential streets in the city. Currently, it's only 10% or that parking permit's required. That would be the starting $45 per year. The second piece that you identified is this, what they call permit pollution charge. So if you have a new vehicle of 2023 or older, um, and it's not uh, emission-free or low pollution like electric vehicle, then you could pay $500 or $1,000 to have that car. But you're absolutely right. It's, um, and that's why I say it's inherently inequitable, is that it doesn't hit the people that can most afford it. Um, or that are more privileged that have the access to the off-street parking, like I said, in a single-family home or in a, in a condo or multi-story building. Did you get the impression, did they look at the, the, the city staff looking at this, was there any attention paid or was there any feedback uh, that they got from people who might right now, say, have a secondary suite or rent out to part of a home, and in that part of uh, the rental is, a, say, a spot in a garage? Uh, I mean, there's a good chance that that could change. And in the future, if somebody in a home has the choice of, I'll either park on the street, continue giving my tenant the garage, or switch so I don't have to pay this fee, like you said, it's going to put people who don't have any other choice. It's going to put them in the, the scenario where likely maybe they need a vehicle, but they're, they have no choice but to park on the street. 
Yeah, I think it's, it's really going to impact. It's going to hurt people the most who can least afford it because they don't have any other choices. Either it's you know it's an economic um, and it's a cash issue, or it's just a practical issue that they don't have access to other space. So if you're in that secondary suite, perhaps your landlord is using the driveway and you don't have an actual option or a choice. Perhaps you need your car for work, um, and you know you're a service provider, right? Home care worker, whatever the case is that you need to drive for that, and you don't have another alternative. So. I think that's the challenge. And when I hear from staff, well, we need to raise revenue um, and, you know, we need to sort of look at a gap here. I think that's where you get that lack of public trust and that crisis of public trust, that this should be about um, smart policy that will really significantly reduce emissions, not conveyed as an opportunity to raise revenue and not impacting the people who um, can least afford it. I think the number given was $60 million. It's expected over four years that this program could bring in. Uh, there was a bit of, uh, at first I heard the figure that it would it could cost about 900000 to roll this out. Uh, then the question was asked again. The answer was it could be anywhere from half a million to a million dollars a year, which seems like a pretty big window when you're talking about how much it's going to cost to roll this out. What are your thoughts on, on that the rollout of a program like this? Uh, well, my, my thoughts are, you know, again, what, what is sort of within existing city services that needs to be delivered and how would the money be spent? I know in response to the phase one of the public engagement and feedback, one of the issues that came up is where's the money going to go um, that's going to be raised um, because it was open-ended and people had, you know, felt like it was a cash grab and, and not necessarily sort of smart green policy. Um, and we need smart green policy, like we need to reduce emissions. And so what we're seeing now is that responding to that and saying, well, it would help fund climate emergency initiatives if council supports that. Um, but it's not going to things like additional transit um, uh, sort of capacity or things of that nature. It would be things like pedestrian signals, um, trees, curb ramps. Um, so you could argue that those are core sort of city c- components anyway that should be delivered as part of the ongoing budget. Or can we find a way to prioritize those? You know, again, I'd like to see us kind of using the carrot versus the stick incentive and encouraging people that do adopt electric vehicles. Maybe they don't get charged for permit or they get charged half off. Uh, it seems like that would make sense if the goal is to entice people to purchase, if they are purchasing new vehicles, to, to do that exact thing, purchase vehicles that don't have emissions. Well, exactly. And again, that's where you get into an equity issue, too, because until those prices come down, it's still, generally speaking, more expensive to purchase an electric vehicle. So... Um, you're going to, you know, again, sort of be benefiting people that can't afford that higher end car. Um, you're also going to be putting more pressure on that used car market because it doesn't apply to older used cars. Um, so, you know, you have to sort of really think these things through and see what the impact is. The original phase of engagement also didn't distinguish between the time of day. And one thing that um, was heard really clearly is, well, what about visitors? I have people that come to visit me and want to come over for dinner or I have home care workers or services that, you know, come to people's homes. Um, and so, you know, now we're seeing this proposed as an overnight fee, um, but not during the daytime. So how would that work if somebody came to visit you and say came for a barbecue or came over, would they not be able to park in front of your house for a few hours during the day? They will be able to during the day in the way that this second variation is, is proposed, but not after 10 p.m. So if somebody's staying for dinner after 10 p.m., they have to go online um, and purchase the overnight parking fee for $3 per night, as it's being suggested now. What about then, 
so does is it going to change then if we look at like you said 10% of the city is currently permit parking and this would would expand the permit parking throughout the rest of the residential parts of the city but so would we have a scenario that if you're staying overnight somewhere maybe you're house sitting or maybe uh, you you're planning on having a couple drinks and you're going to stay in a guest bedroom so you have to remember to go online at 10 p.m. or at whatever time and purchase a $3 overnight permit whereas if you were downtown when the meters stop at 10 p.m. would it still be free to leave your car overnight downtown Presumably, yes. Yes. So far, you know, that, that's probably one of the unintended consequences that hasn't been thought through yet because this is for residential streets and does not apply to industrial or commercial streets. It seems weird that people would be dinged for staying in a residential neighborhood, but not, and I'm not suggesting charge people more. I, I don't think that's the answer, but it does seem like a strange inequity. It, there's a, there's a lot, the devil's in the details and, and there's a lot of you know issues here. So does that mean then therefore that you know parking on the commercial streets becomes 24 hours in order to be equitable? Great question. Uh, what are your what is your confidence level that as we go into this kind of final phase of public engagement, there could be tweaks or changes to this policy? Well, I, I think it's really important that people go on to shapeyourcity.ca slash parking and complete the survey. Um, in response to phase one, the public feedback was overwhelmingly negative, um, raising a lot of these concerns. And so now our staff are suggesting that, you know, they're only hearing from people that um, are really connected and engaged in the issue and that they want to hear from the other voices, presumably people that are not impacted. Um, however, I would argue that, you know, those voices are really important and they need to be heard. So everybody needs to be heard the second time, too. So if they go on and complete that survey... Um, and make your voices known because there were some adjustments made based on the first round. And I think it's going to be really important for staff to hear that and for council before it comes back to us for a vote. All right. Uh, Sarah Kirby-Young, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Uh, I'm sure we have not heard the last on this program. We'll be talking about it again, but thanks for your time today. I'm sure we will. Thanks, Jill. Talking a little bit more about the restart plan, what step two looks like for people in this province and a lot of information that was explained, none of it overly surprising. We knew what step two was, uh, what step two involves, but it was confirmation that yes, step two is going ahead. And one of those is, and we talked about this briefly with Richard Zussman, a maximum of 50 people for outdoor personal gatherings. There can be a maximum of 50 people for indoor seated organized gatherings. Uh, Examples of that, movie theaters, live theater, banquet halls, along with safety plans, indoor faith gatherings, also going ahead, liquor service at restaurants, bars, pubs extended until midnight. Just some of the changes that are all part of step two of the restart plan. Well, let's bring in Angie Qualley, the owner of Well Seasoned, joining us to talk a bit more about what this means for her business, her industry. Angie, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Jill, my pleasure. Good to hear from you. You too. I I know it's been very difficult these past 16 months, I think we're talking about now. What is your reaction to the fact that we are going into this uh, step two of the restart plan? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm so excited to see my parents. They're on the island. I haven't seen them for almost two years. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to that personally. Um, you know, as far as work goes, we've, we've been doing a lot of our meals to go and things like that. Um, and our customers are still ordering that. So the change, the big change for us, you know, people have been anticipating this next step. So we've been getting lots of emails about, you know, backyard 
parties and um, weddings that have been postponed for a long time and uh, people sort of planning to gather through the summer. But most of the people we're hearing from are planning, you know, significantly less than 50, you know, in the 30s, maybe early 40s. And uh, people are being, you know, kind of cautious still, which is, I mean, it's good. Uh, but I haven't had this full on, you know, there's 200 of us. Can you be here on Saturday? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, people, I expected people to be, you know, like, let's get this over with. Right. But, um, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting the last week in anticipation of these changes today. And it kind of sounds like that might be how things go for the near future as far as you're right. People aren't going to suddenly be throwing weddings or parties or, or whatever kind of celebrations for huge groups. But maybe they do want to have 20 people or 30 people and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's what we've always specialized in is a smaller, more intimate groups with a sort of a more customized menu. So we're getting quite a few requests about, you know, birthday parties and big things that had been postponed. And the most interesting thing that, you know, we're hearing from some of our regular customers about is celebrations of life. So Mm -hmm. people weren't able to gather to talk about, you know, loved ones that they lost either because of COVID or for a myriad of other reasons. And so people now want to be able to gather with their family and pay respects to the people they lost in the last 16 months. So that's really, to me, that's super cool. Oh, oh, for sure. People I know have been really longing for that or, or missing that and looking forward to it, if you can say looking forward to, but really wanting yeah. that kind of closure that comes with those those particular celebrations. Yeah, for sure. And people have still been having, you know, small dinner parties the last few weeks um, at their house or out in the park, you know, for eight people out on their on their deck or whatever. So since the restrictions sort of like uh, loosened up a little bit, um, that way, we do a lot of that kind of stuff. We're doing like these meal kits and stuff, and they're so they're super popular. So I think that's how people are going to kind of plan to continue to entertain through the summer. I don't think. I mean, you're always going to have that group that's dying to get out and party, and and I mean, it didn't stop them during the pandemic. So um, I, I just I'm not seeing that right now. Right. Did you get many requests when things were kind of shut down and people were told not to do that? Were people still requesting meals and catering for groups that clearly were well beyond the the health restrictions? Oh, yes, absolutely. We had, uh, you know, a, a bunch of them and obviously we turned them down. But people, caterers were taking the business, Jill. These events were going on, as we all know, Um and, you know, people were desperate. I understand that. But I feel like some of that sort of prolonged the situation for everybody. And so, you know, I was trying really hard to make sure that we did our part and pulled our weight over here so this would end soon. You know, my cooking school still isn't open. We closed our cooking school in March of um, 2020 and we're still closed. And truthfully, I don't see that reopening until at least fall And in the fall, we'll probably do a few private events before Christmas, but I'm not sure when we'll have an opportunity to do our in-person sort of group cooking classes that we've been doing for almost 20 years here. And under this plan, could you technically do it under the guidelines if you had a safety protocol plan? I mean, it seems hard to believe that we could have a high-intensity fitness class, but not an in-person cooking class. Yeah, the difference, I think, from what I understand with the fitness classes is you still have masks and things. And when you're eating and drinking in close proximity, 
Um, I'm not clear on the actual regulations for our business. And uh, when I did ask our, our health inspector not too long ago, she wasn't sure either. So I'm waiting for some really clear direction around how to approach this. Because for me until now, there's been no way to approach it because, you know, people are moving and cooking and we can't install the same barriers that a restaurant would have. So we just, you know, have been completely closed on that piece of our business for you know, a year and a half. Yeah. It sounds like then it'll be a bit of a hybrid. Like you said, people have really embraced the meal kits and getting the meals to go. And for people that are hesitant to jump back into things, probably there'll be a mix of getting requests for that to continue as well as people that are going to be planning those in-person parties. Yeah, I think in the last 16 months or so, people's habits have changed. I know mine have. You know, my we used to go out to eat several times a week, twice a week. I mean, we don't have kids at home or it's just the two of us. And we haven't obviously been doing that. And so I'm I'm not sure I'm going to be rushing back to the same sort of, you know, regularity of dining out that I had been before. And, you know, the restaurant industry, Jill, feels to me like it's in a bit of this massive transition. I don't want to say it's in shambles, but, you know, everybody's having really hard time getting staff. And so I'm not sure the service levels at restaurants are going to be where they were when we left off. They don't have as many cooks in the restaurants. They don't have as many servers. They're having a hard time um, hiring these folks back. And I'm having a hard time hiring staff for our cooking school and for for our kitchen. So I'm not sure how this is going to shake out, but it's, it's going to be, you know, super awkward for a little while for a lot of these restaurants. Yeah, the staffing issue certainly is a big one. What are you hearing from people as to why they're not willing to come back or it's so difficult? Is it the fact that the industry itself proved to be not the stablest when it comes to something like this? Or have people moved on and they just don't want to come back? I think it's a combination of things, Jill. I think um, stability in, in your work environment is huge and we all learned you know, how unstable a lot of jobs, not just the restaurant industry, were prior to COVID. The industry itself needs a bit of an overhaul, I believe, in terms of how people get paid. Um, the minimum wage thing is an interesting challenge, but a lot of restaurants are still paying day wages and things like that. So I think, you know, how all of this works and, you know, the increase of food costs that's happened in the last 16 months has been significant. And the labor costs have been significant. The investment restaurants have had to make in all the PPE and all of those things, the costs just keep piling on. Our property taxes haven't gone down. So the the cost to the consumer is going to go up significantly. At least it has at my place. It has to. Um, so I'm not sure how many people are going to be interested in spending, you know, $25, $30 on a burger and fries. Well, that's actually what restaurants are going to have to charge at some point just to cover their, their costs. Never mind recoup what they've lost in the last 16 months. It's really, it's super challenging. And and a lot of people left the industry in search of, you know, more stable jobs or higher paid jobs. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm not really not sure how this is going to shake out. It's it's going to be interesting. Now, you make an interesting point, especially with the costs going up. And we've been hearing that from other restaurant owners as well. And like you said, if the service isn't there, and again, not dissing the servers, but if there simply aren't the number of servers there and it's not the same, uh, who's going to want to pay that much more for an experience that's not as good, whereas you may as well just get takeout and go sit in a nice park? 
Yeah, and and have, you know, your own beverages or whatever. For me, we were in a restaurant on the weekend that was a totally different model than it had been. It, It was a breakfast and lunch restaurant, and it used to have table service. Now, since COVID, they no longer have table service. You go to the counter, you order your own food. When the food's ready, somebody from the kitchen brings it out to you. Then you're expected to take your own uh, dishes to the the portable tray with, you know, with the bus bins on it so you can sort of bus your own tables. So there was no service other than somebody delivering your food to you. You're still, I mean, I still tipped. I mean, it was still expensive. It was the costs were exactly the same as when somebody was bringing me an extra cup of coffee to the table, but I didn't have that luxury. That for me, that's what I go out for, right? Is the mm-hmm. whole experience. Um, so it, it'll be interesting for sure to see how many restaurants stick with that model because that model um, involves a lot less staff and people have gotten used to it. So I think you're going to see more of that and the the difference between casual dining and uh, fine dining are going to be even more uh, pronounced than maybe they used to be. Right. And so you think there will be a permanent shift when it comes to the service industry? I think there will be things that have changed permanently. And I think some of this is an evolution. I think in a lot of respects, we'll go back to what we were doing because let's face it, there's still tons of kids in school who want to come out and be a server or a bartender while they're in college. So there's staff growing up right now, you know. Um, so I think it, it's going to be an evolution for sure. All right. Angie Qualley, thanks so much for joining us, uh, for coming on the show today. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. All right, this is always a topic that gets a lot of feedback, and we're going to open up the phone lines a little bit later on this half hour. It's a story we first saw in one of the smaller community newspapers, and this is having to do with the Terrace Walmart. And if you've been to Terrace, if you live in Terrace, you know there is a Walmart in Terrace, but that particular Walmart is going to get rid of cashiers, human cashiers, and it's all part of a pilot project. Apparently, and this is what Walmart Canada told the Terrace Standard, the newspaper in Terrace, Walmart Canada told the Terrace Standard that the Terrace store was selected as a test location to go all automated cashiers because a large number of customers were already using the self-checkouts at that location. And a direct quote, again, from Walmart Canada, our business is transforming and we're relentlessly focused on making our stores simpler and faster for our customers. That's why we're constantly innovating and trying new initiatives so we can be the very best retailer. Again, that was what Walmart Canada Canada told the Terrace Standard. So joining me to talk more about this is Marion Chan, principal of Trendspotter Consulting. Marion, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Uh, I know you've talked about this a lot and the move from human cashiers to automated cashiers. What are your thoughts on one Walmart deciding or going ahead with this pilot project to go ahead and make it all self-serve automated cashiers? Uh, I I think it's going to be a very interesting experiment because, I mean, I'm not sure how many average, how many items on average a person will purchase through a a Walmart. But if they tend to buy things that are easily scannable, so they're buying socks and shoes and and things that have a have a barcode that they can easily, quickly swipe and and then pay, it it will be a lot easier. If there are lots of items that don't have tags or if they're buying 
uh, food items, for example, that don't have um, UPC codes or, or the scanning uh, the bar scanning codes, then it will be a bit complicated because, I mean, if you have ever gone through a, a self-checkout, it's not always the smoothest experience. Um, and I, I kind of, I liken it to um, a daycare where you always have to have one person looking after so many kids. Well, in this case, you always have to have one person looking after a certain number of self-checkouts. So they're certainly not going to be able to do away with um, do away with any with help from from the employees, but um, it's just a matter of how many people there are there will be to to assist when something goes wrong, and in particular, how many problems will there be? I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience of you know please wait for assistance. Um, that's got to be one of the most annoying and, and difficult things to deal with when you're just trying to go, go in and get out as quickly as you can. I consider it a win and uh, the anomaly if I can get through a self-checkout without the machine calling for assistance. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And what do you do with items that are for sale, um, that are not, you know, have been marked down? I mean, there's going to be disruptions. And so, again, it comes back to how many items on average do people buy in that store? So if you are buying your your weekly groceries and some socks and shoes, um, that could be a bit problematic. It's one of the topics, as I said off the top, that people are quite passionate about. And even the reaction to this announcement from some has been, I will never shop at this store again. Whereas others are saying, okay, great. If it's streamlined, if the if the tills, if the automated tills work well, that's great. It's going to be a time saver. Maybe with the pandemic too, it's less contact. And that's something that people are looking forward to. Why do you think it's such a divisive issue? It's technology, and technology is always divisive. So if you have a population, um, if if the average shopper of Walmart was, let's say, under 35, the, 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 the hesitancy around it would probably be a lot less profound. But when you've got a population that's probably quite a bit older, um, you know, if they, let's say half of their customers are under 40 and half their customers are over 40, I mean, the under 40 have lived with technology their entire life. So they've got, they're used to adapting to it. And I'm generalizing, of course, but, you know, a younger population is used to having the internet. They're used to having um, the, you know, cell phones. They're used to having all of that stuff. But if you kind of look at those who are over 40, there's going to be a big population who have really um, had to learn how to use these technologies. And I believe that that's probably the the hesitancy around using self-checkout at the beginning was, well, I don't want to do it wrong. I don't want to end up paying more than I have to or should be should be paying. Uh, I'm just going to leave it to the people who are, who know what they're doing. So, but you know, if you look at the, the Gen Z, those who are, you know, under 25, they're, they're the ones who are the early adopters of this technology. So they're, they have no, no, um, they have no problem with using self-checkout. Maybe it's because they're not buying for a family of four. Maybe it's because they're just buying for themselves, but, it's it's that fear of technology and by forcing and and forcing may be too strong a word but by 
by forcing your customers to into something, it may be forcing them over that hump of saying, you know what, I'm going to shop at the Walmart whether I like it or whether I like self-check it or not. And you'll go through it a few times and you'll think, hmm, maybe it's okay. I, 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 had, I had a good experience and maybe I'll try it again. So each time it gets a little bit easier. But the question is, how many people will reject it right. um, before they come back to it? Uh, and Walmart has made a point, and again, this was uh, a, a news release or a statement that was given to the, the Terrace Standard newspaper, saying that it will not eliminate jobs, that yes, they're, they're getting rid of human cashiers, but they do will still have people floating around, helping people if you get a, have an issue at the self-checkout as well. as Because so many people have or are going to online grocery purchase, there are going to be people shifted into the online grocery division of the store. Do you think that makes a difference in that is it people that are, are not only fearful of, of using the automated checkout, but also don't want to take someone's job? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I know lots of people who will refuse to go through the self-checkout because they say, especially during this, this particular time when, when so many people have lost their jobs, they want to make sure that the people in the grocery stores are going to maintain their jobs. So absolutely is one of the, is one of the issues uh, surrounding the self-checkouts. But the question, again, again, is always, well, once they've done it a few times, how um, how much are they going to continue to think of it? Because if those jobs, if those people go away, and for them to say that they're not going to lose any jobs, I think is they're they're, they're either dreaming, uh, or you know they're maybe they're shifting people to the back of the store. But I, I don't know how that would work because the reality is you only need you know, one or two people to, to, to manage the people in the lineup if they're going through the self-checkout. Again, you know, you have, let's say, 20 checkouts. They probably don't have that many. But if they have 20 checkouts and they have two people, that's still only two people. Right. Do you think it's inevitable, inevitable that we will see this shift? I mean, we're seeing it at fast food restaurants. We're seeing so many other places that are becoming innovated and are being a, the human aspect of it is being replaced. Is it inevitable that we will see more of this at grocery stores? I believe it. it, it is because it's going to be one of those um, points of difference that a, that a retailer will have is to say, I actually have people who you can... Go, you know, go, you can go through a checkout and and have a human that you can speak to, um, as opposed to just going through and um, scanning things yourself. I mean, to take it to the to the nth degree, I mean, Amazon had this Amazon Go concept, which they've since renamed, but it's the you you download the app and you just walk into the store, you grab the things you want, and you walk out, and everything gets gets um, added to your bill, and it takes you. You've input a credit card already, so there's not even a checkout. So, I mean, that's kind of taking it to the to the furthest point. Um, that has rolled out a little bit, but it, it you know I think they're working out the kinks um, versus just standing in line to pay for your groceries. So, you know, we're in that very broad spectrum at the moment, and I think the pandemic has given retailers the opportunity to test out some ideas that perhaps in other circumstances they might not because people have 
shifted to more online shopping. Um, the question, though, the big question for me is how much of that online shopping will come back to in-person shopping? Because if you're talking about grocery, which is you know where my area of expertise really is, you know half of those people who started to online shop, they're going to go back to regular shopping, and the other half will do still do lots of online shopping, but they're still going to come to the store. Right. And I'm even seeing that on social media, people saying, I never thought I would love online shopping so much, but now I realize it saves me so much time and I get exactly what I order. Others saying, what are you talking about? It's been my one outing during this whole pandemic. I love the person, the contact contact at the store and actually going and doing it. So it does seem like there's still quite a split. Yeah, and I think there will always be the split. You'll always have those people. And, and groceries is a specific, is, is a very particular um, type of shopping experience because people want to be able to pick up the apples and look and make sure they're not bruised. And they want to pick up the freshest um, head of lettuce. And um, so that's a slightly different aspect. And then, but all of the other types of of non-grocery items, you know, the clothes, the electronics, the shoes, the socks. I mean, those have been quite popular as an online shopping item anyways. But then when you get to things like, well, I have to try it on and I have to return it. I mean, there's always going to be a split between those who love it, those who hate it, and those who are kind of indifferent about it. But I think that that as, as our world becomes more technologically based, you're going to have a bigger divide between those who love it and those who like, uh, hate it. All right. Marianne Chan, thank you so much for joining us. Great to chat with you about this. My pleasure.